Chrysalis. We're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and on today's show, folks, IVP, The Lost Chapter. (laughs) Well, Ron, it's been a while since we did a show together. That's right. Yeah, it has been. Two weeks, two weeks, because our, our Free Rider Friday was was edited ahead of time or taped ahead of time or recorded ahead of time. Taped. taped. Listen to me. Taped, taped. Taped. Good God. Pretty sure Voice America didn't have any tape anywhere. But that's okay. I, I am excited to, to talk about this today. But there's one thing I just wanted to mention, because I did get some feedback, Ron, from our last show, which was with the, the boys from Oz. Yes. And initially, we started the conversation out talking about trashing the timesheet and as is our want. Yep. And I just wanted to clarify something because a couple people have said this to me. You and I have never said that step one to moving to value pricing is get rid of your timesheets. Would right. you agree with that statement? That's that step one. In fact, I looked it up because I was having this conversation with someone and, and on implementing value pricing, which is the book we're going to talk about today in chapter 32, the first time timesheets are even mentioned is like 100, page 170. And then you talk about operating without, it's p- page 243 or something like that. Right. So I yeah, just no. wanted to clarify that because I think that there's people out there who think that we are... At, it's saying, get rid of your timesheets to start, otherwise you'll never value price. And I think what we do say, and what you and I have said on a number of occasions, is imagine a world in which billing by the hour, it becomes illegal. And tomorrow you had to do something else, what would that be? And of course, the answers are all of the stuff that we talk about, right? Right, right. Or the timesheet's illegal, timesheet becomes right, illegal. Right, timesheet's illegal, billing by the hour, whichever, right? And, but I don't think... I've never heard you or I say step one, eliminate timesheets. No, it's, it's, it's a, a desired outcome. Uh, absolutely. And it has to happen sooner rather than later, but it is a gradual transition. And obviously you're going to keep timesheets on those customers that you're working on that are in process that you've agreed and maybe have signed engagement letters to do by the hour, right? You, you have to keep timesheets or some f- mechanism of tracking it for until you can convert those. So until yes. you can convert, you know, all your cut, what I'm saying is once you get to what you could do is you could just eliminate the timesheet on those jobs that you value price. Right. Right. And then slowly it'll go away. But I think having done this for so long now and knowing what we know, the sooner you get rid of them, even if you're only one third of your revenue is value pricing or one half, get rid of them. Yeah, or at least set a target, set a target yeah. to do so. Yeah. Set a target yeah. to do but so. But it's not Which, step one. No, it's not step one. All right. So that leads us to this conversation, which 
I don't know how we came up with this topic, but I, I think I, we were talking about show titles and what we're going to do. And I said, is there anything that you've written that we you, hasn't been released, right? Well, it was inspired by a, uh, uh, Matthew Burgess. Remember, oh, he right, sent right, us right. that email. He said, here's some, here's some interesting topics you guys could cover. And something in there led me to think of this, like something that I think he said something like anything hit the editor's floor or something in your, in your books. And that's how, we, that's how we got to this, I think. And, and out popped what was originally labeled as chapter 32. So I'm assuming that there were other chapters in there, but I know for a fact that there are other chapters after that, because I believe chapter 33, the best chapter ever is on project management. Yes, no doubt. <laughs> and no you doubt. didn't skip chapter 32. So right. this was originally chapter 32, and it was entitled Attracting, Developing, and Inspiring Knowledge Workers. Now, I have to call you out for on the original transcript that you sent me, lack of, lack of use of the Oxford comma, but, but right. we're, we're, we're okay. We're okay with that. That might have right. been your Which editor. would have been changed, by the way, because Wiley uses that. So he uses the Oxford. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, it would, yeah, have been, yeah. would have been changed. changed I, that. Caught, I caught some other typos too, Ed, that I'm not really, uh, you know, happy about, but they're, they're like, they're like cockroaches, man. You can't get rid of them. Well, this is a 12,000 word chapter, Ron. It is. <laughs> there's, there's a, there are some people who consider that a book. I see. know. I know. And it's a rant, Ed. <laughs> It's a rant. You probably figured that out. I, I was, I was, I was calling it a sermon, but okay. Okay. Oh, no, it's a rant. And keep in mind, this was written before our show together where I didn't have an outlet to, you know, scream about these things like personality testing and lean six Sigma and all this garbage that we've tackled on this show. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about this. When, when did you write this? 2010? Oh boy. Yeah. The book came out in 10, I think. So it would have been in nine sometime probably. Okay. Probably, so probably we, written in 10 Seattle. 10 years ago. Yeah. And I think it's interesting. In Seattle or Lake so Tahoe. The, or Lake Tahoe. So it'll be interesting to take us through because you do even use some examples and you even use some examples of some some companies that are well known and we'll have to even maybe talk about that. It's just like any book that mentions a company as an example of something. Do you then come back and say, okay, are they still this? Have they maintained this? Yeah. And I think we'll, we'll address some of those things, but Good. lead us off. So the, the stage was you didn't have an outlet. You needed to, you needed to preach. You got up on your soapbox and you started typing. Right. And, you know, the, the whole Drucker idea that, hey, knowledge work, you, you know, companies need knowledge workers more than the knowledge workers need the companies, right? The economic and they're really knowledge workers or volunteers. That was kind of the overriding theme of this particular chapter. You know, Daniel Pink had written uh, back then his famous book was Free Agent Nation, where he said most people are going to, you know, most people own the means of production or a lot of people in the labor force own the means of production and therefore they can set their own rules and, and work kind of as free agents, right? Many different employers or, or jobs or whatever. He called it Karl Marx's revenge, which I thought was pretty <laughs> I love that phrase. I do. I thought that was good. And of course I said the real aspiration of an organization is to make people better, not just make them better off. Right. And it was a rant about, you know, just, things like characteristics like passion and desire and obsession and motivation, innovation, creativity, they, they don't show up anywhere on a firm's financial statements, yet they, they dictate the fate of the firm. And I had this insight, Ed, and this comes from the economy in mind, going back to Warren Brooks, 
going back to George Gilder in the 80s. I, I remember one of the first uh, customers I had at Pete Marwick that was my own, that I ran the entire job. I was just a second year, um, I guess, I forget what they called the title, senior staff or something. And it was my job. And it was a company called Gene Labs, and they were trying to cure AIDS. And they had an unbelievable board of directors and funders that were all you know, esteemed medical people that were working. I mean, you got to remember this was the eighties and this was money was pouring into this. And I was sitting around with my manager looking over the financials. Now they were losing a ton of money as you can imagine, right? Cause they didn't have a, a, a product. <laughs> they were in R and D phase. And I looked at my manager and said, well, you know, the most important asset in this company, and I probably used the term asset back then, is not even, it doesn't even show up on these financial statements. And that's their, that's their brains, you know, and their creativity. And he looked at me and kind of cocked his, he was a very thoughtful guy. And he looked at me and he cocked his head and he said, that's a profound insight. You know, it's like, well, yeah, but it's true. It's the economy in mind. It's the, it's the human capital and we just expense it here. And yet, no, I'm not arguing that it should be capitalized as an asset, but it, we just don't capture the essence and that, you know, hence the soul of enterprise. Yes. And there's some, some great stuff in here where you take us through and, and even re refer to some guests that have since been on the show. Rabbi Lappin talking about how it's important to, to note that when we eat, we bring the food up to our mouth rather than as dogs do go down to the food because food and is material and the head represents the, the spiritual, the spiritual. And we bring the material up to the spiritual rather than vice versa. Didn't you love that? Yes. And now I'm sure that some evolutionary biologist is going to argue against that and tell us why that that's not the case. But I, I just find again, this notion of spirituality just peppered through all of this. Cause this is in his book, thou shall prosper. And I, I just didn't think that that was it's a, it's a, a great way to start this chapter out to think that, and, he, and this is a quote from Lappin, wealth creation is partially how people express their spirituality. You know, what he said on the show, I think a number of times that work and worship are the same word in Hebrew right. and how important right. that, that is for us to recognize those things. So that, I, th I thought that was really, really great. And then you move on and talk a little bit more about the fact that I, and I, this is a chapter or, or subtitle head, heading, People have value, not jobs. And man, that is an important insight, I think, especially in the way that we think about the economy today, that what we have to look at is that it, the economy is not our, sitting around here to create jobs for people. That's not <laughs> what it's, that's not what it's doing. Right. And, and people as individuals have value. They don't have jobs. And that is the answer, Ron, to me, to this whole concern and worry over, well, there's going to be the robots, we're going to have autonomous vehicles, it's going to take all sorts of, no, and that all may, may and well be true, and those jobs are going to go away, but the people, us people who are going to stay, still are going to have intrinsic human value, and we have been, been incredibly creative, I don't know, for the last 100,000 years or so, of figuring out ways to serve one another. Now, does that mean that there won't be people out of jobs and out of work temporarily? No, sure there will. Absolutely. But in the long run, we as human beings have value and right. we will figure out how to serve our fellow man. So, and, and will those humans that are out of work be any, any different in magnitude than going from 97% agriculture 
to 3% or two less than 2%. I mean, I just, when you look at history, it's just, there's no basis for the worry that this is going to decimate society. We'll always the, find a way to serve each other. Well, and I, I'm, I'm more willing to bet on that. There's also the argument, well, this could be the time. Just right. like, you this, know, this, this is different. This, <laughs> that, that's Daniel Suskin's <laughs> argument. This time is different. And we will talk to him when we get him on the show in January. But I just one point on Lappin too that I really like. You started this to quote that paragraph that wealth creation is how we express their, our spirituality. Animals don't do it, right? You've never seen a dog, you know, trade a bone with another dog, right? I mean, we're we're unique in this, and therefore we're obviously not animals. We have just like language. I think this trait is specific to humans as well right? Wealth creation, serving one another. Animals don't do it. It is, it is very unique to us. I find that very interesting. So certainly is certainly is. All right. Well, we're already up against our first break. Want to remind you that you can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to ask TSOE at verisage.com. Usually we talk about the website, but I want to talk first about the Patreon site. Patreon is where you can listen to bonus episodes as well as get the commercial free episodes of the soul of enterprise. And just as an announcement, we are going to make available to our Patreon patrons this full chapter of IBP, so you will be able to get that. So get onto that website right now and subscribe to Patreon. Those of you just on the regular Soul of Enterprise website will get a, let's call it abbreviated version of the chapter, but not all of Ron's wonderful insights. But right now, a word from our sponsor. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah, 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 Whatever. And four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. 
Well, welcome back, everybody. We're talking about the lost chapter from my book, Implementing Value Pricing. And as embarrassed as I am to make this show about me, this chapter was a rant and it was I who decided to cut it because first off, the book was just becoming too long to begin with. And I believe this was the longest chapter. <laughs> so, so it just I, made it easy to just cut it, the yeah, one chapter and be this, done yeah, with it. Yeah, this, this one probably has the least to do with pricing, even though it's got important concepts. But anyway, I decided to take it out. But one of the things that I really, um, that I really wanted to point out in this chapter was, you know, Peter Drucker spent a lot of time comparing not-for-profits to for-profit. And he thought both sides could learn tremendously from one another. And I wrote in here something like charitable organizations view themselves as real communities, whereas many companies are nothing more than payroll ledgers. That's probably a little harsh, but, you know, Peter Drucker said that the Salvation Army was the most effective organization in the United States. And he literally wrote this, no one, he says, even comes close to the Salvation Army in respect to clarity of mission, ability to innovate, measurable results, dedication, and putting money to maximum use. Their workforce average pay is $400 at the time, right? And in the book, The Most Effective Organization in the U.S., Leadership Secrets of the Salvation Army, Robert Watson, the author, who was the, I forget, what do they call him in the Salvation Army, the top guy, the grand general? I, I forget, there's a term for it. But I, I love what he wrote. He said, hoard our assets, we exhaust them in the effort to reach more and more people. Lower our expectations, we are out to save the world. Trust no one, our best customers and future partners are drug addicts, prisoners, the enfeebled, and the desperately poor. If, if that doesn't show you what is possible in even in a private company, I, I don't know what does. And, and that was Drucker's point, that knowledge workers were ultimately volunteers, and you can't just bribe them with money. You have to inspire them with purpose and, you know, why, whatever you want to call it. But there has to be something greater than just mere expediency. And that's why I think so many people do work so hard for their charities and the organizations they volunteer with. You know, uh, Tom Peters made this point. He says, if you look at your people, he said, they, they volunteer – uh, their churches at various events, they're, they're super productive, they're organized, they get things done, they're effective. He said, all except for that nine to five, they work for you. <laughs> and, and it's, a, you know, it's, it's a great point. I mean, it's an irreverent point, but it's a great point. And there's something to that. And Drucker thought that that was a really important lesson. I, I agree. In fact, this came up on a Facebook conversation this week, might've been even yesterday about this. You might've seen the post I, I did. There was somebody posted some story about a, a, an executive from some pharmaceutical company, I believe in Canada and the whole price gouging thing. And he was quoted as saying, we're in business to make a profit, not to help people. That's what, that's what the CEO said. And my response to this was, look, this is yet another example of a business person who doesn't understand that, Profit is not a purpose. Right. That profit is the result, and and I use the whole the the line from John Mackey about how profit is like red blood cells, and that it's you, you don't wake up today thinking, hey, I got to produce red blood cells, but yet it's a necessary condition for survival. And profit, going back to Drucker, right? Profit is the price we pay for tomorrow, 
and but it's a res, it's a result, not a purpose. And it's it's incredible to me how many people in business don't understand that. And I, I'm I, and somebody said, are you saying that it was okay for them to gouge customers? No, that's not what I'm saying. That's, not what I'm saying. Yeah. That's, 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 that's absolutely not what I'm saying. I'm saying if they if they had if this guy had understood that his purpose is actually to help people and that profit is a result of him helping people, the outcome possibly is different. Maybe he does increase the price. Maybe that's something that they had to do in order to to pay off loan. I don't know. I, there's a, re, a lot of reasons why you could justify the price increase, but saying that we're in business to make a profit is not one of them. And Ed, when you hear that, I totally understand why people are attacking the idea of shareholder profit, you know, value maximization or profit maximization, or even Melton Friedman's, you know, the, the, the social purpose of a corporation is to make a profit. I understand that attack when you hear things like that. Of course, that's not what these people have ever said. Melton Friedman didn't say the only purpose of a corporation is to make profit, right? right. And he understood you had to have a purpose in order to do that. You know, the J&J credo that we've talked about in the past. So, I, so it's, it's one of those things that I don't know if it's a linguistic trap, but when I hear business people say that, kind of like, you know, greed is good, you think, oh, well, you idiot. You just set us back, you know, 20 years. Yeah, we get stuck in that. We get we get stuck in, in the, and then this is where it brings in the corporate social responsibility stuff, right? And we talk about how important it is that we, corporations are socially responsible. I'm not saying be irresponsible, but <laughs> what I'm saying is, is no that that that's that they are by definition, right? They are by definition. They have and to be. I, I, they have to be. Well, and, and this leads then to the sage advice here given by Samuel Golden, uh, which I just love you quoting this line. I had heard this line a long, long time ago is that the key for an, act, for an actor is to be sincere because when you can fake that, you can fake anything. anything. And yeah. I, I unfortunately think that far too many companies are faking this whole corporate social responsibility thing. And it's not coming across as sincere. I agree and with I you. Think that, and I think, that's, I think that's a problem. Anyway, moving on. And I can't believe that you quoted Labor Secretary Robert Reich in this book. I mean, that didn't see that coming. But yep. and, and what a great insight. I know. And what a great insight he actually did have here regarding what he called the pronoun test. And this is a quote from Reich. As I, as I asked frontline workers a few general questions about the company, if the answers I get back describe the company in terms like they and them, I know it's one kind of company. And if the answers are put in terms like we and us, I know it's a different kind of company. And I think that that is a great insight. It is. I think that's right. something that you can pick up because it, it goes back to our whole linguistic thing that we've talked about, how important the language is and the use of the language. And when people do feel that they're part of a team and part of a, a something that's doing something good, they'll say we and us as opposed to they and them. So Right. They'll stuff. say our customers, not my customer, things like that. Mm -hmm. yeah. The other great insight, um, Ed, it was the Disney University instructor who pointed out people don't leave companies they leave the leaders or managers in those companies. So uh, very true. I've always loved that, that line. That's a, that's a, and it's a, it's a great, great example of, of what we have to, and I, I think going further, I, I forget where this was. Oh, I just found here the, the, about what people want, right? They, they want freedom from management, mediocrity, morons, and they want a change and a chance. 
And I think right. that that's really great. That's from the gifted boss, how to find and create and, uh, and keep companies. So terrific insight there. Freedom from, freedom from management, mediocrity, and morons. And that includes right. your customers, by the way. They want to change and they want a chance to do something great. So. The other thing is, you know, there's a section in here called becoming a lightning rod for talent and talk about how Southwest hires not for skills, but for attitude, right? They figure, well, we can teach them what they need to know, but we can't make them friendly or personable or whatever. And the Heritage Foundation is, uh, I love their line, always have people are policy talking about administrations, right? Put the right people in then they don't, they probably don't need memos from the president because they already know what to do. Um, and that is probably the most important thing that any leader in a knowledge organization does is cultivate uh, human capital and everybody, and it's a constant job. It's like they have to be talent scouts, right? And I've even got a baseball, you should like this, the bat, you know, the batting average, I think Drucker makes this point, but the average firm bats about one third, you know, on, on hiring decisions, because, you know, a third of them turn out to be good decisions, a, turn out to, a third turn out to be minimal, minimally effective, and a third turn out to be abject failures. In no other realm would executives tolerate that level of performance. So true. And I will say this, and this is one of the things that I mentioned at the top of the show, Southwest Airlines is still doing it. And, they are. And let me hold out them as an example. Now, even their first and even second generation CEOs have moved on. And in fact, we talked about Herb Kelleher passing on, I think it was last year or the year before. Yep. Yeah, last and, year, I believe. And I believe now they're on their third C CEO uh, because Colleen, what's her name, I think has retired. Right. right. And I'm see, I see, see commercials and their, th their latest one is when you put a heart on your plane, <laughs> yep. you're, 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 and, and look, they're still doing it and they're still doing great. I do not fly Southwest mostly because I have a gazillion miles on American and because of the right amendment. Yep. Yep. But <laughs> the right amendment. And, yes. <laughs> that it did get let repealed, me, right? It I mean, did, finally, I, but I already had a million miles with American Airlines. So there's a great right, example of sure, the trickle sure. effects of uh, bad policy, right? Uh, right, so, right. <laughs> the other thing, Ed, that I really liked is I, uh, and I always forget who says this, but the chief scientist, Bill Joy of Sun Microsystems, he had a law that said most of the smartest people are never in your own company. I, I love that. Incredibly profound. And I, and I have that highlighted as well. And I heard that the, for the first time repeated by none other than Scott McNeely, who is giving a speech, who is the CEO of Sun Microsystems, who is giving a speech right. at a session that I was attending, went back in my Great Plains days in Fargo, North Dakota. And I remember several things from that speech. One of the things he said, and this is a tangent, but he, he said th that the network is the computer. And this is, this was back right, right. in the days before the internet. And yes. if you just think about this notion of the network is the computer. computer. Now you're like, wow. <laughs> so, you know, Gilder quoted that exact. I don't know if Gilder was quoting him or he was quoting Gilder. I don't know, but Gilder said the same thing all the way back in like telecosm or something. He wrote mm -hmm. about that idea. But I heard that quote about the smartest people are never in your own company and that has something that it's always really stuck with me. And that's so true. As good as Sun Microsystems was in its day, because it that's one of the ones that didn't quite make it. It's it's now in the great, I forget who acquired them. I think it's Compaq right. or HP or something. 
and so they 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 did didn't make the the next leap. But at at the same time, I think that that is so true. That the even the companies that we admire today, the Googles, the Apples, I think they recognize that not all the great talent is is in the, inside their four walls. They want to hire it, but they recognize that there's a lot of great talent and a lot a lot of smart people overall outside those four walls. So this really gets rid of the never invented here syndrome. I think that's the probably the most the biggest insight takeaway from that. You know, just real quick, I know we're up against it, but the way that one company has tangibly implemented that very concept is uh, Procter & Gamble. They went from research and development to connect and develop because they figured, hey, the best ideas aren't necessarily within our four walls. And the CEO at the time, uh, forget forget the guy's name, but he said, I want 50% of new ideas that come from outside the walls of this company. And they achieved it. And I thought that was brilliant, a brilliant way to leverage that insight from, from that guy. Absolutely. So. Fantastic stuff. Well, coming up, we're going to be talking about education and our, we'll have our rant on continuing education. We both have one here, but right now uh, we want to t- tell you that, that you can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to ask TSOE at verisage.com. Of course, the website is the soul of enterprise.com where we will post show notes for this show, as well as our 250 some odd previous shows, as well as previews to upcoming shows. But right now, a word from our sponsor. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Today on the Soul of Enterprise, we have been dealing with IVP, the lost chapter. And one of the subheadings in this chapter is the importance of continuing education. And, and Ron, this is when we're still ranting about this. We still bang our chair, bang our, our, our spoon against our high chair about this one all the time. Big in fact, <laughs> I ranted against this just last week. 
Yep. <laughs> and because this whole notion, especially in the professions of continuing professional education and the fact that as an instructor, I'm the one who gets rated as opposed to me giving a grade to people who participate is just completely back ass words as far mm-hmm. as I'm concerned. I don't understand that at all, but okay. I will say this though. This is a complete side note. I did a webcast for a CPA Academy and during the webcast, it was a replay, one of these replay deals. Mm-hmm. And during the webcast, one of the participants made a note of a verbal tick that I had and still have. In fact, I've been working on it today. I think I've only said it three times today, but I'm trying to get it under 10. That's my goal. And that is after a sentence, I have a tendency to say, right? Yes. That's your verbal tick. I've noticed that for the last four years. You go well, back why and- didn't you tell me? <clears throat> See, now I'm mad at you because <laughs> I had to be told by a, by a student and I, I, you know, here's the thing, Ron, the rest of the webcast was unlistenable for me. I, I actually because you to, focus so much on those things. I, I yeah, had to know, turn Ed, it off. I had to turn you, it off. It was so bad. You know yourself that when you listen to yourself, you're going to be your worst critic. And when somebody else <laughs> listens to you, they put up. You know, Rabbi Lappin's got verbal tics. Uh, almost everybody I listen to, except Tom Woods. <laughs> Tom Woods is the only one who's completely flawless when he speaks. Completely, never ums, no, nothing. He's got no verbal tics. And Richard Epstein. On Richard Epstein, but I, I, he, I, he doesn't have a podcast that I know of. If he did, it would just, oh, that'd be overwhelming. <laughs> it would be overwhelming. All right, back to this, though. But, but the point is, is the continuing education for me actually did happen during, from, feed, from feedback from one of the participants, but it had absolutely nothing to do with the content. I know. And that's my point. And I have now been working on this for the last couple of days, and I intend to beat this. I'm sure I will beat it by picking up another one. That's what will happen. Right. And I think it, what, I, what I find is it's weird because it's a verbal tick at the end of the sentence as opposed to the beginning. Most people's are at the beginning, right? Uh, I just did it uh, um, at the beginning. I do it at the end, which is weird. All right. Anyway. Let's go back to the importance of continuing education. And this is one where we, again, bang in our chair, our, high, our, high, our spoon against our mm. chair on this, yep. because why is it that so many people in continuing and prof- the professions spend so little time increasing the knowledge of their workers? I mean, they, and they just expect them, I guess, to do it. The average company spends 1.3 to 3% of payroll expense on education, but according to the AICPA, at least 10 years ago, it was 0.8% on continuing education. I don't think, and I don't think that's changed much, by the way. I I don't think it's changed much either. And I would, I I hope that somebody who's listening to this can give us a better number. Mark Koizel, if you're out there, please uh, let us know because we, we hope that this number is getting better. Man, if that's still the case, no wonder we got a problem. I think it's a two-sided answer, Ed. One from the employer, well, if we, if we educated them, they could leave, right? Which is insane because, you know, we've asked for years, right? What happens if you don't educate them and they stay? <laughs> we have the dumbest people in the industry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but the other side, if you talk to the professionals themselves, they will tell you, too busy. I've got billable hour quotas, man. I don't have time to sit in a classroom or, or go online. Is it, 
Yep. Is it I, is it billable hour? Do you think, or is it even it, companies that have moved to value based pricing and even subscription, they still have the too busy? Well, that problem. would be that. I don't have the data on. That would be an interesting thing to know. Um, that would be a very interesting thing to know, actually, because I do. Uh, but overall, yes, it's underinvested in. But look, I. I and this was a rant to say, hey, the corporations or the firms need to, you know, develop the human capital of their people. Um, otherwise, they put them at risk of, of leaving. But I, over the years, I've kind of put more onus on the person themselves. If you're a true professional, if you're a true professional, you should never, ever stop learning, irrespective of what your employer does. Now, yeah, find an employer that w is willing to invest in you and pay for things, but you know, it's still the burden is, should be on you. But, but I, I do agree with that. I do agree with that. Although I think there is something to be said for the organization that places an emphasis on it. And the organization that you cite in the book is one that I just love. And that's the container store. I can't tell you the amount of container store stuff that is actually in my house. It, it's a lot. It, 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 I, is, I, it is mid five figures. I'm not kidding. It is, yeah, it's embarrassing. They must but love you. They do love, they do, they love me and my wife. When we walk into the store, say, hey, how they, you doing? They, they say, probably no, close it. It's, oh, it's the classes are <laughs> here. Bring, Come on. Bring out the wine. <laughs> yeah. It, it really, it's, it's, it's somewhat, somewhat embarrassing. But I will tell you that. I had an experience with them in the last year that just re-emphasizes something that you have in the, in the book here or in this chapter, that the full-time salesperson there receives 241 hours of education. 241. That's more than 10%. It's huge. And more it's than 10%. More than 40, the average CPA or, or, and lawyers do even less, I think, per year. I mean, that's six times more. That is just absolutely incredible, but it shows because they are some of the best people at having value conversations. You want to hire somebody for your firm to do business development, go to the container store and hire somebody for, try, try to hire them away, first of all, but hire someone from the container store. They, they, do, they are experts at not saying, well, what is it that you need? They say, describe your problem. Right. Tell me what's to, going on. What are you trying what to is, do? What are you trying to do? What's the situation in your house? What What are we? And and then they'll brainstorm with you and bring. And even if you don't, how, well, how big is it? Well, I don't know. And then they'll stretch out. They'll put their arms out. Is it bigger than me stretched? Is your closet bigger than me stretched out? No, 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 no. It's a little bit okay. And so they'll be able to figure things out with you without a tape measure. They don't need the numbers. They're like, okay, this is going to work for you. It's it's incredible. Beautiful. Yeah, that, that, and, and that does, that comes from education. Um, the other rant in here, Ed, was like, it reminded me that, uh, you know, when I used to work at the big eight, I used to sit in my desk after lunch, you know, when I wanted to do a siesta, it's just not culturally appropriate. Um, and I'd read a book and I put my feet up on the desk and usually some manager or even partner would walk by and, you know, do a double take. Hey Baker, what are you doing? I'm reading this book and well, don't you have work to do? Yeah. Well, what are you doing? Well, I'm reading this book. And it was never, well, what are you reading? How, how can it help the firm? What are you learning that could help the firm's customers? It was always, well, okay, you obviously don't have enough to do, so I'm going to assign you more work. And 
But it also dawned on me that I could have never written any of my books while employed at your average accounting firm. And that's a sad commentary on the profession, I, I think. And, and I'm not just saying me, I'm, I'm, I'm saying it'd be impossible to write a book in an accounting firm. It really would. I'm trying to think, do I know anyone who's been a CPA in a firm who's actually written a book? I think they're all people who are an independent practice. Yep. It'd be really hard to find. Now, I'm sure you can find it. I know you can, can look to McKinsey Global Institute, and they have lots of books out there because that's, that's the sabbatical that, that the McKinsey consulting firm puts you through. If you want to write a book, okay. We'll put you over and make you a fellow at the, you know, the Global Institute. You can write your book there. There's no vehicle for that in a in a in a big four, big eight, uh, and that's just sad. That's what just are your thoughts sad. on that uh, on sabbaticals, Ron? And I, I want to just parse out that there. I think sabbatical is different from something that you and I have advocated, and that is row, right? Mm. Results only work environment is. You, you, you don't have to a set number of hours, nothing, unlimited PTO, th- theoretically unlimited right, PTO, right. or you don't have to ask permission for it. It's make sure your work is done. But I think sabbatical is a bit beyond that because sabbatical in some ways is, I think, a little bit more forced, don't you? Not, not forced, but you will disengage. Right, not- you will disengage, and, and, but you'll do something else. I mean, I don't know if it's like a MacArthur grant where you can just sit around you know, you, 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 you have to, you have to, you know, I'm going to go to Italy and learn how to cook, right? Or I'm going to learn two new languages or so you, you set some type, I don't want to say goal, but you set some type of learning objective. It's really about to learn, right? Mm-hmm. I remember reading about Richard Feynman who, you know, when he did his sabbatical, he, you know, he went and did something completely different, like worked in a biology lab or something. I forget what it was, but it was like completely different from a, what a physicist would do. Mm-hmm. What do you I, think about that? Do you think I, that, that sabbaticals should be something that firms insist upon almost to, just to, to make sure that people get a clear head every so often? I, I, I do. I do. I, I, I think that I think it's phenomenal. And I think the the wise ones would give people sabbaticals more often. I, so, and some firms do to their credit. Some firms do. I have I have worked with some firms that do that, but very few. Yeah, it's five. What do you years, think I would about say, it? I I think it's a great idea, and I think it's like every five years. Yep. I don't know what it is for professors, but they're you know tenured professors. But that's kind of where it started, wasn't it? Right, and they just just t- took uh, di- didn't have to go to class, didn't teach, didn't have to teach. Right, right. They and was they would that. just do research or something like like that. But I think that we should begin to examine this and, and in professional firms or maybe even beyond professional firms, insist upon this once every five years sabbatical for a month where you need to shut your email off and right. not produce those results. And that's why I'm separating that out from the row. Right, right. Yeah, no, and I do think it's an separate. intentional not production of results. But anyway, up against our last break, Ron, and want to remind you that you can get a hold of Ron or me by sending the email to AskTSOE. That is also the Twitter handle at AskTSOE and the Twitter hashtag AskTSOE. Also want a, a quick reminder that we do have a couple spots left in the Verisage Down Under. If you are in Australia or would love to travel to Australia the second week in November, that's the week of November 11th, 
We would love for you to come by. If you want more information about that, the place to go is verisage.com slash VDU for Verisage Down Under promises to be an absolutely incredible week of learning. And this would be the time to get your real learning in, not just your CPE. But now a word from our sponsor and my employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is, for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're talking about the lost chapter from Implementing Value Pricing. And Ed, just before we continue, we have a new review on iTunes. And as we always say, folks, (laughs) if you give us a written review on iTunes, we will certainly read it. And this one comes from Boy Man Dude. I like that handle. Uh, It's titled Moving from Bookkeeper to Consultant. He says, I've been listening for a couple months to Ron and Ed on my daily walks. These podcasts are part of my curriculum as I make my transition from providing bookkeeping services to controller consulting services. I appreciate their insight into the many ways that technology continues to change our lives and professions. It helps me figure out how to adapt in my profession. Hearing their opinions on our political environment is of great interest to me as well. That's interesting, Ed. Uh, I also enjoy the banter between these two guys. I'm often laughing out loud as I walk around town. My family knows you both by name now and as I often share some of your stories. This show is both educational and entertaining. Looking forward to listening to the archives. Thanks so much. We really appreciate that. And folks, if you could go out to iTunes, give us a rating. That really helps the currency of the show so we can get great guests as as we have next week for you, which we'll tell you at, towards the end. So, Ed, what, what struck you next out of this uh, this chapter that I shamelessly threw on the cutting edge floor? 
Well, there's a whole section that we're not going to deal with. Actually, two whole sections because we've had entire shows on them. One is performance appraisals and the the personality testing. So we right. don't need that. In fact, we have multiple shows on that. And then also, we just did a show on compensation. So I think we could we can fairly skip over that pretty quickly. Except to say that I was just reminded of the last couple sentences of that section. You have an old military man saying that a man would not sell his life for a million dollars, but would gladly risk it for a medal of honor. And I was just reminded of the story that Father Sirico told about Mother Teresa when someone asked her, Mother, I, I wouldn't do this for a million dollars. And she said, neither would I, neither yeah. would I. She was, had a, was holding a leper, I think, in her arms in their dying moments. Said that, I love that. Uh, that's a, a beautiful thing. But next up is the work-life balance rant. And this is not even your rant. You actually added a rant from one of a Verisage fellow to this. I guess it became your rant, I suppose. But it's really Morris's rant, Dan Morris's rant. Dan Morris, yes. He, so uh, tell, he, tell us about that. He, he said, you know, look, he said, I know you run around and you tell these knowledge or these uh, CPAs. He was talking specifically about CPAs, maybe lawyers too that they're knowledge workers and there's something flattering about being called a knowledge worker, right? You're in this new vanguard of wealth creation. It sounds really, really flattering, but Dan said, really, are they knowledge workers? He said, look at the firms they're working in, you know, um, he really questioned the whole thing. And then he wrote this rant, I think on Verisage somewhere where he said, I'm not really sure they're knowledge workers, Ron. He said, because look how their firms treat them. And this was something that Stephen Covey pointed out in the eighth habit, uh, which is from effectiveness to greatness, where he said, it's the leadership beliefs and style of the manager, not the nature of the job or economic era that defines whether a person is a knowledge worker or not. Now, I think that's a necessary condition, but I don't think it's sufficient. I believe what defines a knowledge worker is whether or not they own the means of production. And even, even our guest, Joe Woodard, has even a different take on this than either me or Dan, and I would say Peter Drucker. He said, you're not a knowledge worker unless you're imparting knowledge. So he says a surgeon isn't a knowledge worker because he says, I get up on the table, they perform surgery, I leave the table, I don't have any more knowledge than I had before. Therefore, they're not a knowledge worker. And I say... That's not the right criteria, at least not how Drucker wrote about it. But, that, you know, that, that could be how many angels dance on the head of a pin, right? Who cares? Dan's point is you're not a knowledge worker in a, in a firm that makes you do timesheets because those types of firms don't understand that knowledge workers are paid for ideas, not hours. They're not given any free time like Google's 20% time to, to develop better ways to add value. Um, the firm doesn't understand the judgments and discernments are more important than measurements. You know, a, a true knowledge worker shouldn't have to account for every 10 minutes of his day. You know, I'm reminded of what the UPS founder, Jim Casey said that a man's worth to an organization can be measured by how much supervision they require, which I think is a really interesting criteria. Uh, you know, and Dan made all these different points. I won't go through them line item by line item, but he said, if you look at all these, most for most professionals that work in firms that hourly bill and do timesheets and let's face it, that's the majority. They're not really knowledge workers. 
Now, I don't know if I agree with that, but what do you think? Well, they certainly sometimes don't behave as such. And I do think that there's a yin and yang effect on this. I think that people can become knowledge workers, even if they aren't treated as such. So I disagree a little bit with Stephen Covey on that notion. Now, mm-hmm. does that mean that they might leave their employment and seek out other places? Yes. That's so that I would agree with that. So if that's what he's saying, Hey, if you're not a knowledge worker, if your leadership is not treating you as such, you're going to get the heck out to become a knowledge worker. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Right. But I, I think it, it starts always with the individual. And if the, if I decide that I'm a knowledge and knowledge worker, then I will be. Although I will say, and this is something that we skipped over at the very beginning of the chapter, you make this point, and this is the phrase that I have used, which I think is even stronger than knowledge worker, and that is to say that I am an intellectual capital investor, in my case, in Sage, right? I am an intellectual capital investor in Sage. I come to Sage with the knowledge I already have and have gained in my 16 years at Sage, but even before that, I came to, to Sage with a certain amount of knowledge, and I'm investing it in the company that is Sage, and I expect it to pay a knowledge dividend. I expect it to, to I expect to get more knowledge from lots of different places, not just the continuing education that Sage sends me on, but in the interactions that I have with partners and customers and certainly colleagues with inside the organization. I have a quest and a thirst to increase my knowledge and I want to get that from the people that I interact with, which gets back to social capital. So is it intellectual capital or social capital or both? I suppose it's a, it's really both, right? It's about that relationship. Right, right. Yeah. Intellectual you mean and human social capital, capital investment. Right. Human so, capital. Social overall. capital and human capital are part of intellectual capital, but I know what you're saying. Yeah. Right, right. Um, you know, that's, that reminds me just Stephen Jobs' favorite or famous quote is, it doesn't make sense to hire smart people and then tell them what to do. We hire smart people so they can tell us what to do. And how many, how many professional firms have that attitude? You know, I don't think many. many. Yeah. Not too many. Well, Ron, what do we got coming up next week? All right, Ed, I'll be in fanboy mode and uh, octaves will go up again in my voice, but we're having Chris, Elroy Strickland, retired U.S. Air Force colonel on, former U.S. Thunderbird, my favorite air, air, air team. And he's just written a book called Survivor's Obligation. And folks, I cannot recommend this book enough, and not just because we've interviewed Chris twice, but Ed, this book blew my mind. And it also yep. made me weep in places. It is powerful. Absolutely. It is powerful, Great. and I can't wait to, to get them on. Yep. So please read it ahead of time if you want to participate next week. But otherwise, Ron, I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the soul of enterprise business in the knowledge economy sponsored by Sage energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. Join us next week on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, please do visit us at www.thesoulofenterprise.com.
www.thepowerhouse.com. 